HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode of A Taste of the Past is brought to you by the University of California Press, publishers of The Georgian Feast, The Vibrant Culture and Savory Food of the Republic of Georgia by Dara Goldstein. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. We're a member-supported food radio network broadcasting over 35 weekly shows live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. Join our hosts as they lead you through the world of craft brewing, behind the scenes of the restaurant industry, inside the battle over school food, and beyond. Find us at heritageradionetwork.org. Hi, and welcome to A Taste of the Past. I'm your host, Linda Palaccio, on this journey through culinary history. And recently, I had the pleasure and the good fortune to make another trip to Rome, which I try to do as regularly as possible. doesn't always work out. And on that trip, I had the pleasure of meeting up with Karima Moyer-Nocki. And she took me and suggested we visit this exhibit, took me to this marvelous exhibit at the Biblioteca Casatanese. No, Casatanense. Casatanense. Tanense, right. This, uh, the, an 18th century Bibli- um, library, which was gorgeous. And just as gorgeous as a library is, it was, the exhibit was on scents and flavors, odors and flavors. What, how would you translate that, Karima? Um, Tra aromi e sapori. Aromi and yeah, sapori. Yes. It's, it's scents and flavors. Right, right. Sapori. And it yeah. was a, a wonderful, I would say, um, we're talking the Renaissance writers um, and their cookbooks early, and these were some of the original copies, and it was a fabulous exhibit. Mm. And I thank you so much for for suggesting that and meeting me there and doing that. And and actually, <clears throat> Karima is um, talking about books, an author in her own right, and has written um, a couple of books. Karima was born in the United States and immigrated to Italy in 1990. She is a lecturer at the University of Siena in the Modern Languages Department and teaches food studies at the University of Rome, Tor Vergata. Her first book, Chewing the Fat, An Oral History of Italian Foodways from Fascism to Dolce Vita, uh, came out in 2015, and it received critical acclaim. It's the food we know about Italy, as we were talking earlier, (laughs) the Cucina Povera. She currently resides in Umbria and is here in New York on um, a bit of a lecture tour, not just New York, here in uh, other places, uh, a little 
lecture tour about New Haven in Boston. In yes. New Haven at Yale mm-hmm. to do some lecturing on a new project and a new book that is soon to come out called The Eternal Table, A Cultural History of Food in Rome, an epic culinary history spanning from the pre-Romans to present day. It'll be published in January of 2019? Actually, it's coming out in March. In March, okay. So look for that by Roman and Littlefield, Mm -hmm. and um, and that'll be wonderful. It's part of the Big City Biography Series edited by Ken Obala. We've had a couple of those, um, those books on, and... And something that Ken writes about the series that you have written this book for is that food helps define the cultural identity of cities in much the same way as the distinctive architecture and famous personalities. And that could not be truer than the food of Rome and the city of Rome, that there's so much to identify Roman culture. Food is one element of it, but food is such a huge element of it. Mm-hmm. And this book that you write, Karima, The Eternal Table, it's a history of the food, the gastronomy, and cuisine of Rome. It, you say that it is a, a cultural history. It's, a, it's the food culture as much as it is actually the, you know, the actual food. And you write about the role that food played in the development of the city and how it led to the individuation of gastronomy with a uniquely Roman stamp, which once again harkens back to what Ken had said, that food is an identifier of a city. And you start, however, with the pre-Roman era. Why did you feel it was so necessary to go back so far to tell the story of the food of Rome? Well, I go back actually to um, the geological history, And granted that geomorphology is not one of today's sexy buzzwords, but a broad spectrum examination of um, a culinary uh, history of a single limited location should begin by addressing what the available resources were. So, and how these first inhabitants, in this case, the Latins coming down from the, um, from the Po Valley into this area, what they were going to encounter, and how that um, meshed with their already developed culture, because they came with a culture, um, and how that was going to uh, uh, mix with the natural resources and um, influence then the culinary trajectory. So, in the area called Latium Vetus, which is Old Lazio, um, in, it was particularly interesting because there were a number of features that are called marginal landscapes. And the marginal landscapes would be swamps, volcanic activity, um, impassable forest areas, a fire-prone scrubland, clay-like soil, and wispy topsoil. These are the things that the these first inhabitants were going to use as the building blocks for Rome. And they use these marginal, these marginal landscapes, and so it puts us in a position of thinking about um, human ingenuity versus environmental determinism. And um, so just thinking about those things in particular and using some examples, at the base of the swamplands, you had um, salt, which was so important to the development of Rome. The volcanic soil was good for growing grapes. The scrubland was full of aromatic herbs, and um, the abundance of clay would then provide the materials for making the amphorae. 
That's right. And that's and so much of what we know about their past is is finding these um, these shards and these mm-hmm. these old vessels. In, yeah, mm-hmm. and in Testaccio region, right? And um, and even the residues um, found within mm-hmm. that tell us what you know what might have been carried in these, aside from oil and wine. Right, right, right. <laughs> yes, garum. You know, so, well, right, right. wonderful things. Yeah, right. Um, it was. Um, the book is is structured in such a way. It's not what I expected to be. This, you know, you said pre-Roman to you know to the present day, more Yikes. or less. Right. I, I said, well, how many volumes is this going to be? You know, how huge a book is this going to be? Mm-hmm. It's really not that big. And I must say, it's. I I was surprised by the fact that it is so readable. It's like a, a popular. I don't want to say a popular history. You know, popular history book, but it has. It is a cultural treatise of of the food and the time condensed in such a way that you don't have to go, you know, year by year all along and right. and you give the grouping and the, and the periods. But how how did you structure it to cover such a vast amount of time? Yes, indeed, um, covering 2,500 years of a culinary <laughs> history, but in exceptional an exceptionally multifaceted place like Rome. So it's not just the amount of time um, and that's no small task. And it needed to be addressed both vertically and horizontally, materially and conceptually. So I begin with having a diachronic approach in the first two chapters. They're set out that is, they're set out chronologically, um, beginning again with the geomorphology and then moving through the first chapter to the founding of Rome so that that base is done, moving in, then continuing in a chronological way into the next chapter, the next chapter with um, the era of kings, the, the republic, and the um, all-important Roman Empire. Um, the rise and fall of Roman Empire, and then the rise of Christianity. So we're talking like 500 BC to 500 CE, right? I mean, right. So that's that's covered in the in the first two chapters. So all of this, of course, is seen through the lens of food, which, as Andrew McGowan um, very well succinctly stated, history seems to have been written through the ages as if no one ever ate. Um, The other chapters then move on in a topical way, covering the kinds of things one would expect, the uh, culinary literature, markets, and so on. Um, And those move, however, concentrically. That is, that they go back to ancient Rome and then move on through time, each one focusing on the areas of of time according to that topic. So um, in the end, what you have... At the end of the so five chapters of um, of topical chapters that move concentrically that refer to one another in a dialogical sort of way, and they become cross referential as a whole, hmm. and, and and that way the um, uh, an entire picture can be presented of such a long period of time. Yeah, I mean, and even though at times there are vast differences of those periods there is there is something there is that thread that kind of you know holds it all together mm-hmm. that's amazing well what when you say a, a cultural history of food what what do you really what precisely do you mean by by the cultural history well um, I'm looking at this as a single volume longitudinal kind of um, examination now the these topics have been, 
dealt with in various ways, in, in various formats as well. For example, the, the uh, incredible body of, um, of literature that's been done on ancient Rome, a, lots of articles, lots of tomes, and moving on also to um, food apps even <laughs> that give you a little bit of culture, and, uh, with, but, but a single volume that allows that to be traced is what I meant by, I take the, the, the term cultural history with it very broadly. So um, I mean to examine history from a multidisciplinary, multifaceted um, mode of inquiry to bring together social sciences, the usual kinds of things with food, uh, culture and food, sociology, anthropology, and in this case, very important theology, also philosophy, um, the political sciences, as well as uh, economic factors, um, the history of labor, botany, archaeology, a wide range then of literary uh, genres, uh, with primary source literary genres, as they regard gastronomy and enology. Um, in order to trace the, not only what I'm trying to trace here is the meaning of food and not to create a grocery list um, of who was influencing the food and um, the not only the native population, but whoever had a vested interest in it. Right. Well, in, in doing research, um, anyone who's, who's done any reading or eat research in, in the ancients and, and in the food world and food history, you know that they don't just give you, as you just said, you know, a grocery list. They just don't spew out a recipe and mm -hmm. say, this is what we had for dinner. It's right. all couched within health and science and right. and there's always an intro about how it should be how one should eat it where one should eat it when one should eat it um, so it, it really is understandable that this is this is how you would approach it um, and I keep thinking of volumes of Pliny and exactly. <laughs> the exactly. elder which you were talking about right, you know, right. the botany and everything else I mean this is all of these are brought into it and then a lot of fact and fiction, and how do you, you know, it's tough to separate because we know so many of the writings are also um, a little bit of a work of fiction, like the the um, uh, the satires. But but of course they're based on what they knew. So where do you go for, you know, for the definitive information? Um. I don't know that definitive information is, is necessarily my aim as much as allowing for a fair mix. So um, when you go back to, with, with the literature, and you go back to um, um, the, the inception of uh, Latium Vetus and the... Um, the great agricultural treatises, so um, the things about running an estate, and that has a mix as well about um, how to venerate the gods and ritual foods, but then you can move on as well to um, Galen and a medical treatise, which he gives us a rare glimpse about um, what, what poor people were eating. Um, which you're not going to to get rare so much, right? Yeah, very it's, it's rare. very rare, right? And the, also his take on the sociology of food, what you should eat, how you should eat it, as you had said. Um, then the highlight, of course, 
of the of the Roman era, the ancient Roman era, is Apicius. Um, and there wouldn't be another recipe compilation for another thousand years. So we, at which point we get into um, sort of this era, the tri-era of Maestro Martino, who comes out in 1465 with his Art of Cooking. Um, then his book is importantly picked up by Platina, who elaborates the text in Latin, and um, and doing so, he elevates the culinary arts to the humanities. It becomes a work of the salon to, if you will, a, a coffee table book to be read by learned men, hopefully learned women, but doubtful. Um, and then a hundred years later, you get the, the jewel, perhaps, of... Roman cookery, which is Bartolomeo Scappi's mm-hmm. uh, opera. And we were so fortunate to be able to see we saw, one of the original mm, copies. It, of, it was a chilling uh, moment yeah, for me. Yeah. Well, backing up a little bit, I, hate to, I don't mean to take you, you know, back, but you, um, you had talked about the foundational, some of the foundational culinary values of the ancient Romans and how that's carried through to today. Is there one thing in particular that you would say, or a couple things, if you want, um, what, I mean, there were times they had to learn, they had to really learn how to feed the people in the urban areas. I mean, they, Mm -hmm. you know, people outside of the urban areas knew they could forage and they could, they could grow. Um, was this a call to farming, or was it... Oh, there was a definite call to farming, and it's something that's repeated um, because the stalwart farmer figure is um, is the main value of, of the ancient Romans. So there's this Hollywood image of the Roman who is feasting until until he is full to bursting and then voids the contents of his stomach to right. recommence gorging uh, again. We've become not only familiar with this idea, but really just enamored of it to the point that we don't want to acknowledge maybe that um, parsimony was very important to the to the Romans. And then as Rome, as Rome expanded and new foods started coming in, luxury items started coming in, what you have then is a backlash um, against novelty because it was too much too fast. And so you have the writings of, of Cato and um, the natural historian Pliny the Elder who's, um, who sees these foreign foods as things that corrupt tradition. Um, they weaken the collective identity, and it's a, an identity that's based on the civilization, of what they thought of the civilization of the appetite, so very much against hunting and all towards husbandry and how, how one was supposed to eat. Um, and this is a kind of universal fear with uh, that you can see in any sort of fundamentalism. Um, and you've often said on your show what's what's old is new and it works the other way as well that novelties once they they've once been rejected um we can take for example fish which is so much associated with the mediterranean diet but pliny railed against fish as not being proper roman Mm. food Mm -hmm. um and and yet as time goes on these novelties and things that people are against get absorbed into the culinary grammar and then they they in their own time morph into traditions and take on the aura of timelessness themselves um, and it's a pattern that gets repeated throughout roman history because meaning and identity are not immutable 
Right. They're and in you, a constant state of evolution. Right, right. right. In, fa- <clears throat> in fact, um, the uh, common thread, you say, throughout this book is mobility as mm-hmm. a defining characteristic of Rome mm-hmm. itself. Right. And how do you, so And you can't mobility. have mobility without, uh, without change, without mutability. Right, right. right. Mm. Yeah, and it's interesting you mentioned fish because they, the early Romans, the pre-Romans, if you will, they didn't go to the sea mm-hmm. for, for sustenance. They did not eat from, from the sea as much. I mean, that, that came much later in terms of their, their much later hunger right, for right, it. Right, right, right. Yeah, yes. yeah. Um, we move on. I mean, well, we move on to the, <laughs> we move on quite a, quite a ways um, when you go forward. And you can't, you have to read the book to find out all the periods. But, mm-hmm. you know, we've got to bring ourselves to something that we can identify with. Sure, we read about all these grand, you think of Roman food, and you think of these humongous banquets, as you mentioned before, mm-hmm. gorging, people gorging themselves, and slaves, you know, slicing things and feeding it to them. But then we move on to, uh, well, actually, austerity times. But we're going to talk about that when we come back after a short break. So stay tuned. This episode of A Taste of the Past is brought to you by the University of California Press, publishers of The Georgian Feast, The Vibrant Culture and Savory Food of the Republic of Georgia, by Dara Goldstein. According to Georgian legend, God took a supper break while creating the world. He became so involved with his meal that he inadvertently tripped over the high peaks of the Caucasus, spilling his food onto the land below. The land blessed by heaven's table scraps became Georgia. Winner of the International Association of Culinary Professionals Julia Child Award for Cookbook of the Year, the first edition of the Georgian Feast introduced a generation of cooks to the rich and robust cuisine and culture of Georgia. These classic recipes, ranging from savory hachapuri cheese bread to traditional appetizers and cakes, are guaranteed to excite new generations of home cooks for years to come. Recently revised and expanded, this new 25th anniversary edition features new photography, recipes, and an essay from celebrated wine writer Alice Firing. Pick up The Georgian Feast by Dara Goldstein, available now wherever books are sold. Hi, we're back, and I'm speaking with Karima Moyer-Noki, and she has a, she's a historian and a professor of languages, and she has a new book coming out in a couple of months called The Eternal Table. And it is all about the food of Rome, a cultural history of the food of Rome. And it, the, Karima, the, the, the ancient Romans are of great interest to so many people. And that you really need time to just pour over and, and read and, and kind of immerse yourself in that feeling of, of yesteryear. But something we can really identify with is more when, when we get into the um, the period that actually has more, what can I say, more carryover into today's time, and that would be Cucina Romanesca. Talk a little bit about that. Um, in the, the chapter on the Cucina Romanesca um, is the one that I don't start back with uh, ancient Rome. I begin with uh, Martin V and his movement into um, the the return of the papacy to Rome, and um, 
and with him he had his cook who was responsible for all of the um, the, the the non-papal sort of dinners. So, and in this cookbook, he's created this cookbook which is preparing him for people who are going to be coming into Rome to the, um, the Santa Sede um, of all, from all walks of life. And so it's very interesting to see the sorts of foods that he believes are, because after every recipe, there's a listing of, of who this food would be appropriate for. Hmm. And so it's such an interesting sociological, uh, sociological study. But the Cucina Romanesca, then, you have this ju- juxtaposition in time of the, um, the Cucina Cardinalizia, which is that for the high clergy, and the Cucina, um, the cucina Popolare. Um, I reserve Cucina Povera for a, a, a different sort of discourse of, of people who are not necessarily, um, who are getting maybe a substandard kind of nu- nutritional mm-hmm. um, uh, profile. But the Cucina Popolare is what the populace, people who were eating, could afford to eat and what they were, uh, and how those two sort of come together over time and, and the way that comes together. You have what I call the triple matrix of um, of the Romanesca, which is the Roman Jewish food, and then um, the 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 food of the the quinto quarto, the testaccio, the urban areas, um, and also the the food that that originated sort of outside of the uh, urban framework of Rome. So you can say sort of into, into the countryside. And within that, we, we get into the very interesting topic of the uh, carbonara, pasta la carbonara, which uh, <laughs> could not have been ignored given it's um, the fascinating, uniquely fascinating sociological study that it's become. It's, it, you know, it's interesting. I just recently... Um, ran a show during the same visit to Rome, and I spoke with a good friend, Katie Parlow, who's been on the show very much, and I questioned her on why all of a sudden are we seeing this, and this is old this is old food. Why are we suddenly seeing these dishes brought back to popularity? And um, especially since you mentioned early on there, you know, food in the cultural treated, treatment of food history, it's, it's political. It's religious. I mean, you can't separate the mm-hmm. sociology, you know, the, the religion and 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 um, and politics from what people have available to them to eat. So this is interesting because carbonara sort of is the what do I want to say the poster child <laughs> for right, that right. food. Yeah. yeah, and the the first time that it's mentioned, it's not. And I'm getting my you know that that this is a um, a very sensitive point for a lot of people. So my source for this is Alberto Capatti, mm-hmm. um, a culinary scholar who who uh, says that the 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 first time carbonara is written as a term and means that food is in 1954. Even though we, we, this is again something that we've taken on and we want to believe that it started out somehow with, um, with, with the Romans. Um, and 
Its origins are various in their, in their history. They're many and various, and incidentally, as are the ingredients, many and various, uh, the preparation methods as well. But I don't think there's any other Italian food right now that so incites the fury of the authenticity <laughs> police than this dish. Yeah, and, yeah. And, and it's amazing to me because it's also sort of a... Um, as far as the collection of ingredients goes, it's kind of a no-brainer that it was going to happen. Um, and yet we want to believe that, uh, for some reason, that it has a specific origin, it has specific ingredients. Um, because of the international vehemence around it, I do an extended examination of it, highlighting then using it as a vehicle to highlight issues of authenticity. Um, and to open a dialogue about the flexibility of what culinary grammar is regarding a certain location. Um, once, once something gets dubbed traditional, it, it just becomes a, um, a hot item in that sort of way. Um, if I could give an example of the ways that, that carbonara, just the, the usefulness of the term, once you get outside of the Stazioni Termine in Rome, there are, there's a strip of um, Muslim proprietors who have fast food stands. And each one of the, um, the foods that they offer are, are pictured on a little cartello. The car, you know, on a, a picture, card, picture okay, card, right. right? On a picture card, and so the their carbonara, um, because of their dietary laws, is called uh, carbonara chicken and cream, but they've got the little bits of um, of red pepper on top so that it, that it looks the right way. Now, when you're talking about um, culinary appropriation, can we keep calling that? Um, carbonara, when so many people get incensed, if you even think about adding butter or cream. And then taking that a step further, the vegans have, um, have a vegan carbonara sauce that comes in a jar, and you've taken out the eggs, the cheese, and the guanciale. What do you have left? A at what? that point, what is it that's carbonara right. about that? Um, and so that's also it speaks about the, the power of the name of this dish. Yes. Yeah, it, mm. is, it does. I mean... People go and make that pilgrimage to Rome in search of the perfect carbonara. Right, right, right. As people once did with with pizza. Yeah, um, yeah. Which created the pizza effect. Then, yeah. right. You know, we we kind of did glossed over period. Well, we glossed over a lot of periods. I <laughs> mean, that as I say, buy the book when it comes out and read it. Um, but um, to the fact the, about a recipe and and something being traditional and <sighs> that awful word, authentic. authentic. We don't like right. that, right? <laughs> Classic, okay. Right, right, right. Um, there was a cookbook author who really, I mean, codified so many of the recipes that people identify with as Roman cooking, and that's Adaboni, mm -hmm. one, of the, one of many. Um, she did not have a recipe for carbonara in her book, did she? No, she didn't no, have I a have recipe. The for she right. her her famous book is the Talisman di Felici, right. Felicita, and there are some uh, horrible, uh, almost like bastardized editions in English. Um, but still, they yeah. They're not oh, great. I didn't know that that particular one had been translated mm -hmm. into English. Oh, okay. yeah, okay, it's a that's it's a a, a very it's a much abridged book. version. Oh, okay, okay, <laughs> yeah. 
Okay. Yes. Yes. And so yeah. it's yeah, it's not. But anyway, she doesn't. I mean, that's and we're talking. She well, she came. That's because oh, it the was, talisman of happiness. Yeah. Then, right. Yeah. Right. Okay. And and she also has her in her book, um, the the Cucina Romana, because talisman of happiness came out in nineteen twenty six. Yeah. And then yeah. Um, and then a, after in fascism, if you think about that, it started in nineteen twenty two. Um, in nineteen twenty nine. And this sets up also an interesting uh, vision of that sort of pull towards and against um, the these forces of, of custom and tradition and authenticity, because she already in 1929 wrote this book called the Cucina Romana um, about a, a popular Roman food of which she was not of that class because she was upper middle class, but um, it was still very much in her heart. And you can tell by the the way that she writes this book. Mm-hmm. Um, it doesn't include the carbonara. No. Well, and as you say, really the first written recipe was 54, 1954. Right, right. So, yeah. yeah. And she, um, so in that, in that particular book, though, you can see her... It, loving this sort of traditional thing, and yet in um, Talisman of Happiness, which was, uh, she was a fascist proponent, and m- moving towards the future. So the, that, that, um, that pull, that contrast between those two things is very much a part of Italian food today, and Roman food as mm-hmm, well. Mm-hmm. That's interesting, because her... The recipes, the other recipes, you know, hold true. Whereas somebody like mm-hmm. you and I had been speaking um, a couple of weeks ago about Luigi Carnacina. Luigi Carnacina. Right. His his recipes were really the Alta Cucina, the French adaptations right. of recipes in, in with Italian ingredients. Okay, and, and so in his in his cookbook, which is called Roma in Cucina, mm-hmm. um, in 1962, then. So this is when the Dolce Vita has, has already taken off. The, the economic miracle has already taken off. His carbonara, and he is a, a chef. He's Roman. He's writing a book about Roman food, has both butter and cream in it. Yep. The, um, Some onions for good just, measure. There's uh, <laughs> <laughs> hair-raising <laughs> ingredients. Yes. Yeah. Uh, well, it's interesting because through the... I mean, everyone gets to write their own adaptation. You see that in cookbooks today, even. Yes. You know, the but recipes. not the carbonara. Yep. Right, yeah, no, yeah. do not mess with the carbonara. Yeah. Uh, and speaking of the, you know, carbonara being, you know, people go in search of the Holy Grail, if you will, the, exactly. you know, the carbonara. There's this whole thing about eating out in Rome. Mm-hmm. And, and, and um, yeah, it has a long and varied history as well. So what, what is your take on that? And you, you, tr- you talk about that in the book. You treat that. Yeah. Yes, um, it's a problem for for chefs today, um, who these terms like traditional, authentic, genuine, even even regional, are really weighty, and they set up expectations, uh, and for paying customers because um, most of the the it can't be denied that that's a motivating force. Most of the customers, one can say very clearly about Rome, are coming in for that for that holy grail. So what kind of room does that leave? They're shopping, they're shopping for that supposedly authentic experience. What kind of room does that leave for a chef to continue what has always been the evolution of um, Italian food? Because certainly when, when the Latins came down, they didn't bring that sort of food. Neither is it featured so much in, in Apicius. Because as Platina even said, um, now Platina is writing in the 15th century, 
he's a humanist and he's very much venerating because of that he's very much venerating um the the classics but he he said we've moved past apicius on the modern table we're not interested in those tastes we're interested in other tastes so this proclivity for the real deal um leaves little room for the evolution of roman food that has always characterized it. And chefs are trying to find this happy medium which will allow for some self-expression and yet um, give that reverent nod to what has come before. Um, Because there was a period of time when those dishes really kind of went into, faded into the background, and um, people were trying to move forward, Heinz Beck and uh, all sort of other... Mm -hmm. um, chefs of that genre. Um, and it would be a shame to stifle this this evolution that is that is going on right now. But people did want to put do want to put their personal stamp on it, as did Bartolomeo Scappi. So why is it when when is it that time stopped and it makes these dishes turn into something trattorie and the osteria today. Um, because they're so looking toward back into the past, it makes them into a sort of food theater or, or food museum mm-hmm. rather than something that's actually a, a, a living part of the culinary evolution. Right, and there is, in fact, a little museum, the Museum of Pasta, the Pasta right, Museum, right? right. right. Um, which makes me think that one thing that I, w- I would like to um, make mention of, because we didn't have a, uh, an opportunity to talk about that earlier in the show. And that is, if you were to say that, that the cuisine is based on one thing, the Romans really did base much of their, if not cuisine, and that's a loaded word today, their sustenance on on grain. Right. Um, the, the... And... This is also looking at a, a, a choice that they had made culturally, eating what's called puls, um, which then developed into the word, word pulses, uh, even though it was referring in this particular case to a sort of ground toasted wheat that was, um, that was then made into a gruel. And then pulmentarium, which is, are all of the things that, that are surrounded by that. So um, they... They, that made a distinction between them and the barbarians who were milk-drinking, beer-guzzling, meat-eating, <laughs> um, things that the Romans in their civility did not want to, as I was saying before, the civilization of the appetite, um, showing a certain sort of decorum and restraint through this, this choice of food, foods that had been raised agriculturally. And um, this, however, was... did was influenced by the the Greeks and um, and all, as well as the Etruscans, and the Romans took it on for themselves as well um, as a sign of of civility and what how pe- proper eating should be done. Yeah, interesting. And then it went. I mean, from that they they transformed it into bread. Right, and right, and right, and the and the um, bread, and then the logical thing that would come out of that would be later pasta. Pasta, uh, right. The, the history of pasta may have beginnings with the Picius and things that are called um, the patina, um, but purists are not willing to say that that, that laganum was necessarily right. something like lasagna, right. and so you get and a patina, I think, these. more of like a 
thicker omelet. <laughs> right, right, right. So. Yeah. Um, interesting. It's it's there's so much in, well so much history, but mm-hmm, mm-hmm. but so much interesting history too. And and the dole. I mean, the dole. You know, the the public assistance. It was, you know, it was all grain. And well, then, and the, then right, it turned to bread, right? It was it was grain. But it, interesting that the communion with the gods started off being being through meat. That's how you commune with the gods. It was. Um, for some of the food was distributed, and for some people that was their opportunity to actually get some protein um, through through animal sources. Um, but you take that sort of source and then move it into to also deified the goddess Anona because mm-hmm. the Roman grain supply was also deified. It was a sort of communion, but with with a goddess of the state um, and. She was actually from, pictured on the coins, so she would be imprinted right, yeah. with her picture on the coins. Um, so, um, and there are a few statues. Of, I have one yeah. of those coins, actually. <laughs> and um, and then that that moves on. I'm making this, I'm simplifying here, and I realize that, but moves on then into the Eucharist and allows that bridge to take place between meat-eating, um, grain-consuming, and then... Um, making that making that bread the body of Christ so mm-hmm. so that meat then becomes bread yeah it's all it's political and, it's right, religious and they, it's and and interestingly the um, christian liturgy picks up the mediterranean triad of wine oil and bread and also interesting about those three products is that they they are not natural naturally produced. So that means that they need to be manipulated by human beings um, before they before they become those products. So bread, oil, and wine, which is part of the ideal then of of um, the Romans. Right. Excellent point. Mm-hmm. Excellent point. At excellent work. the The book is really very interesting. And thank you. Um, as I say, you you cover a vast amount of of uh, time, a period of time, in a very readable and and I would say you know it's brief brief period, <laughs> brief time. It's not a, it's it's not the daunting book that I you know I thought oh and how am I ever going to get through this before I I speak to you about it. It is really very readable. It just and hard to tear thank myself so away from too. Oh, thank you That's so good. much. Yes, yes. So thank you so much for taking the time on your trip here to speak with us here on A Taste of the Past. Thank and, you, Linda. It's been a pleasure. Well, yes. and I encourage my listeners to look for your book. It comes out in March, and uh, once again, it's called. The Eternal Table. Um, it does have a subtitle then too. Oh, The Eternal Table: A Cultural History of Food in Rome. Wonderful topic. Okay, wonderful thank you. talk. Thank you. Very Thanks much. so much. And thank you for listening to what has been another Taste of the Past. And join us again here on Heritage Radio Network every week at the same time and. Anywhere you get your podcasts, you can download the podcasts from iTunes, from Spotify, here at heritageradionetwork.org. And if you're so inclined, click on that little beating heart and donate to this network. Keep our shows alive and on the air. Thanks so much. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter, Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. 
Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.